Matthew chapter 24. I'll read verses 4 to 14. Our focus today will be on verse 9. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Again, our focus will be verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, please help us. Holy Spirit, please illuminate the Scriptures and apply these things to our hearts. Lord Jesus, please tarry with us for, for a little while longer that we might benefit from Your presence and Your power. Help us. Lord, I pray that You would help those here, especially those who do not believe what I'm about to say. I pray that You would convict us of our unbelief. Help our unbelief, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Remember that our Lord is here answering the questions that His disciples asked Him after He had promised that Jerusalem and Israel would be held responsible for their consistent rejection of and hatred for all of the prophets culminating in their rejection of and crucifixion of Christ Himself. And the coming judgment would consist in the complete and utter destruction of this city and this temple, which had been the center of the religious worship on earth for centuries. This was the place where God had chosen to make His name dwell, and this will be the place where God will come in judgment and He will level it within a generation's time. In the last two Lord's Days, we've seen that Christ, the Good Shepherd, is preparing His disciples for what's about to happen, for the days ahead that would follow His crucifixion and His ascension, the days that would lead up to this destruction of Jerusalem, a period of almost exactly 40 years, almost exactly a generation, fulfilling what He said, all of these things will come upon this generation. This generation... He says, will not pass away until these things take place. 
And they will happen within that generation. And so they must be on guard. For false Christs will come. False teachers, false prophets. We see the warning against false prophets again later. False teaching will abound. We saw last week they should, continue, or they should expect continued political turmoil, natural disasters, and yet none of these things signify the end. None of these things signify this prophesied destruction. As a matter of fact, what we've seen, to sort of recap some of the, the more specific doctrinal points, God's salvific dealings are about to move from primarily dealing with this nation to the world. Primarily up until this point, God had worked through the nation of Israel and with this people. And after this point, this work is about to spread to the nations. The worship of God will no longer be tied to this place and this temple, but God's true worshipers will now worship in spirit and in truth all over the globe. And while all of this is happening, the overall condition of the world is not going to change. Christ is preparing His men by explaining to them the mission is going to make a shift. The mission will change, but the religious, political, natural landscape of the world, as opposed to the church, is going to be pretty much the same. And so we could outline verses 4 to 14 in this way as we had. First, there will be warning of false Christs. And secondly, there will be genuine trials. Those trials will come in trials outside the church. We saw last week political turmoil, natural disasters. And this week we'll begin to look at trials inside the church. We'll see first persecution from without. Then we will see apostasy from within. And during both of these, we'll see evangelism to the world. So we begin today by looking at persecution from without. What can these men expect? And I believe we too, what can we expect while we're awaiting, while they were awaiting the end that was approaching them, while we are awaiting the end that is approaching us, what can we expect with regard to the church? The first thing we can expect is persecution from without. These disciples, as the seed of the New Testament church, and all those who will continue with them after Christ's ascension, all of those who will be gathered into the church during those days following Pentecost up until the destruction of Jerusalem, what should they expect? They should expect persecution. Again, contrary to what the Jews expected to happen when the Messiah came, Persecution will abound. Jesus had told these men, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So they have this picture in their mind. The mother of James asked if the two sons, her two sons, the mother of James and John, if they could sit, one at his right hand and one at his left hand in his kingdom. In other words, they're already getting, getting ready for what they think is going to immediately come upon the world scene. This, this literal, earthly, political kingdom that would exalt Israel to power. This proves true again when Jesus first predicts His death in chapter 16 and Peter speaks up. He refused to accept the idea of a suffering Messiah. And Christ responds to him, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. 
And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, that's not the language of immediate glory. This is the language of the theme that we see throughout Scripture. Suffering that leads to glory. And one of the means that by which this suffering comes upon the disciples of Christ is through persecutions from outside the church. It's not the only way we suffer, but it is one way that disciples of Christ suffer. Verse 9. First we see His promise of physical opposition. Then, He says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. The word then here is not chronological. As we might say, I got up this morning, then I ate breakfast, then I came to church. This is, it just literally means at that time. While all of this is happening, something else is going to be happening. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Now we would ask, who is they? Verse 4, there was a reference to those who might lead these men astray. In verse 5, there were false Christs and false teachers. In verse 7, there are nations and kingdoms. We know that believers, true Christians, would not deliver up one another to tribulation and put each other to death. And so, to state it very simply, we could say this could be any person, any group outside the true church could potentially be the ones to deliver these men up to tribulation and put them to death. Now turn with me quickly to John chapter 15 where we see a similar warning of this same truth. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Chapter 16. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Notice here we have these titles. They, them, the world. It, referring to the world. John or, or, or the Lord describes this group. These are people who hated Him. They persecuted Him. They do not know Him who sent Christ. That would be the Father. They don't know God. They hate Christ and they hate the Father. The they, those who will come in persecution against the, the disciples of Christ, are those, anybody from any group, who hate the Father and the Son, who do not know God. 
That's why Jesus says, I think, just very succinctly, the world. Everybody who's not a believer has the potential to carry out this persecution. Romans 1.30, we learn that all natural men are called haters of God. That's everybody naturally. So any natural man could potentially fill the shoes of a persecutor of the disciples. He says, they will deliver you up. They'll hand you over to tribulation. Now that word tribulation is important. If you've done any, any consideration of eschatology at all, the word tribulation is a popular word. We see it again in verse 21. There will be a great tribulation in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. In 2 Corinthians, this word is translated affliction. In Ephesians, it's translated suffering. In Philippians, it's translated trouble. Of course, the title, The Great Trouble, doesn't have as much of a, of a grab to it. Tribulation is simply an oppressive state of physical, mental, social, or economic distress. That's tribulation. So Jesus tells His disciples, they, pretty much anybody in the world, will deliver you up to every kind of oppression and affliction imaginable. And... They will put you to death. They will kill you. Remember Matthew chapter 10. He had already warned them of this same truth. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Who's that? That's Jewish people. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Anytime Scripture refers to Jews and Gentiles, it's saying everybody. That's the, everybody falls into one of those categories. When they deliver you over, He says, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone throughout all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And remember, when we studied that passage, that phrase, before the Son of Man comes, makes the most sense to apply it to the Son of Man coming in destruction upon Jerusalem. And Matthew or Mark and Luke actually in their account of the Olivet Discourse include almost the exact words that Matthew has there in chapter 10 in the Disciples' Discourse. So these men, along with the larger body of Christ's disciples, are here warned that they should expect physical opposition up to the point of death. Now after Satan had taken Job's entire livelihood and his family. He suspected that if he could just touch his physical body, then he would certainly turn from God. Commands in Scripture like love your neighbor as yourself or husbands love your wife as your own body, these are based on the basic presupposition that men, we all love ourselves and especially our physical bodies. We will give ourselves to any endeavor that promises physical, mental, social, or economic comfort. That's what we like. For the disciple of Christ, those things are going to be the means of physical affliction. They will deliver you over to tribulation and put you to death. Secondly, 
He promises for them emotional opposition. You will be hated by all nations. You will be hated, despised, rejected, detested, held in disrepute by others in their hearts and in their minds. By all nations, ethnos, ethnic groups, all kinds of people are going to hate you. So here we, we learn that these men should expect that even if, even if people don't act on it, even if they don't come to you and say, just so you know, I hate you, if they don't sincerely love the Lord in their hearts, they hate the Lord and they hate you. They hate His people. This hatred in the heart of a man can and will fuel every other kind of persecution. And even if they don't act on it, just know they hate you. That's what he's saying. Now thirdly, notice the reason for this opposition. This is the most important part. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now hopefully you know that in Scripture the reference to the name of God when Christ refers to His name or my name this refers to the association of a person's personality, their goals, their accomplishments, whether for good or for bad, the association of all of that, all that they are, all that they say, all that they do, all that they stand for, all that comes to mind when you think of that person, all of that associated with the pronunciation of their name. So, one of the best illustrations is the word Hitler. When I say Hitler, you don't think of the many other people who have the name Hitler. You're not thinking of Robert Hitler or, or whoever might have that name, and there are still people with that name. You think of Adolf Hitler, Nazi Fuhrer. The name Hitler brings with it these ideas. You picture a swastika. Swastika was around thousands of years before Nazi Germany. But you don't think of that. You think of Nazi Germany. You think of his haircut, maybe his mustache. When it comes to mind, when you hear the word Hitler, you, you think of the Sig Heil salute that the Nazi soldiers offered to Hitler. If you saw pictures of early American children pledging allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between that salute and the Sig Heil salute, but you don't think of early America. You think of Nazism when I say Hitler. That name has captured all of that and taken it to a place of, of violence and, and filth and refuse in the minds of almost every person who lives. All that comes with the word Hitler. Well, Christ also has a name. And Scripture is very clear that Christ has been given a name that is above every other name. And so when Jesus says, for my name's sake, we have to understand that contained in that language, my name's sake, or when we read, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, encompassed in that is all that Christ is as eternal God. All that He is as incarnate man. All His power, all His dominion, every word of Scripture, every command, every prohibition falls under His name. 
All of His worship, every prescription for New Testament worship or Old Testament worship falls under the name of God, the name of Christ. Every prohibition in worship falls under the name of Christ. Every act that someone might undertake trying to copy Christ as the model would be assumed under His name. Every song that you sing with Christ or God or the Holy Spirit as its theme, every song that you sing that contains a biblical doctrine or biblical reference comes under the name of Christ. Every church that gathers under His name, every prayer that is uttered to the Father, we pray in the name of Christ. Every gospel message that's preached, everything you do in the world under the title Christian, whether you say it out loud or not, all of that is assumed under His name. Now that adds a little more weight to you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It's not just a word. It's every step you walk while in your mind believing you're a Christian and taking that step in vain, in uselessness. Jesus says you'll be handed over to tribulation and to death for my name's sake. Literally through My name, on account of my name, on behalf of my name, you disciples of Christ, you're going to be handed over to tribulation and to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Everything that Christ is comes chained to his name, and it is that name that will bring hatred and tribulation and death to his disciples. So Christ here reminds his disciples what they should expect and why. Physical persecution to the point of death, emotional opposition to the point of hatred, and all of this will happen because they go forward carrying the name of Christ and everything that's tied to that, everything that it entails. The New Testament bears this out very clearly. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, we see that Stephen was lied about and then stoned to death. A great persecution arose in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 9, immediately as Paul is converted, the Jews in Damascus want to kill him. In Acts chapter 12, James is killed, Peter is arrested, and we just on and on throughout the book of Acts, you see, this persecution comes upon these men. In Romans chapter 8, Paul could quote from Psalm 44, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We know very explicitly from the language that the letter to the Hebrews was written to persecuted saints who were ready to give up at all. Because all they have to do, all you have to do is just let go of the name. And you're fine. And they were tempted. James, we know, was written to believers scattered in the dispersion. And he says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He didn't mean when you go to work and somebody doesn't like you or somebody, doesn't, somebody comments on your Facebook post. He meant, count it all joy, brothers, when you go out into the world and you don't have any friends and people want to kill you. Count it joy. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, John could write these words, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus... I like how he puts all those together. Yeah, there's tribulation and the kingdom. Kingdom's not gone anywhere. We're enduring. He says, I was in the island of, on the island of Patmos 
on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 2.10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Imagine you get this letter. Be faithful unto death, and you will receive the crown of life. John writes to that local church that existed in his day. It's coming. Be ready. Just be faithful to death, and you'll get the crown. And he writes as representative to churches all over the place, all over the world. Maybe not in the same way, in all of the same times. And, and there are true churches in America who are not dying, but it will come. The point is, this word from Christ was literally fulfilled in that generation. He's not speaking first and foremost to some far off future day. He's speaking to those men. Again, notice the language. They will deliver you to death. You will be hated. Was well, this concept something brand new in redemptive history? It would have contradicted what they thought about the Messiah, but it's not new. Again, if we, if we just remind ourselves of what we learn from Scripture, first about truth. Truth comes from God. Romans 3, 4, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. John 17, 17, Your word is truth. John 14, 6, I am the truth. John, 1 John 5.20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We talked about the veracity of God. God is truth. And over against that, men are false. Falsehood comes from men. Romans 8.7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. As long as there has been truth, there has been falsehood. Here we're taking it a step further. Natural men whose minds are set on the flesh, who are hostile to God, not only have they always despised the truth of God, but they've always despised the people of God and persecuted them. Think about Cain and Abel. Abel worshipped in spirit and in truth. And what did that do but make an open spectacle of his brother's worship? God was the one who did not accept Cain's sacrifice. It wasn't Abel. Cain couldn't get his hands around God's neck. He couldn't throw a rock high enough to hit God. And so he looked at the one that made an open display of his sin and he killed him. He took it out on his brother. 1 Kings 18 and 19, Jezebel kills the prophet. She threatens to kill Elijah. 1 Kings 22, Micaiah is put in prison. We see Jeremiah. They wanted to kill him. They eventually get him and throw him into a pit. None of this is new. In Amos chapter 5, it says, They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. This world does not like people who speak truth. They hate it. But they can't get their hands around God's neck. So they're going to take it out on the ones who are speaking it. And we can trace this out throughout the history of the church. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I encourage you to read that book. I'd plan on reading some quotes, but you can read that book. I just want to quote this one. As he sums up the section that ends the death of the apostles, leading into the centuries following the apostles, he says, and I quote, even with all the continual persecutions and violent deaths, 
The Lord added to the church daily. The church, listen to this, was now deeply rooted in the doctrine of the apostles and watered abundantly with the blood of saints. She was prepared for all the cruel persecutions that were to come. And it doesn't slow down. It just keeps on and on and on. Persecution we see throughout Scripture. We see after the biblical time period. We can even see some of these examples and we get to see some of them in our own day around the world. Even though for the most part we can't personally relate to it in this country. Yet, here's the truth of Scripture. Very plain, very simple. Here's what we need the Spirit of God to speak to our souls. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we don't believe that, but the Bible says it and it's true. Now, some men don't know that they hate us yet because our testimony is not bold enough. It's not strong enough. If you think it's your job as a Christian to just, just hide out, just keep quiet, don't speak unless spoken to, avoid confrontation at all costs, you're mistaken. That's not Christianity. We're not responsive. We're, we're on the offense. We're a part of the victorious kingdom. Sometimes men not admit that they hate you. But deep down, they do. They despise the way you live. Your Christian life should be a spotlight on evil and worldliness and secularism. It should, it should crawl under their skin when you're around them. Amen. But let's turn to, return to the reason. Why is it? Why can we expect this? It's not because we have bad attitudes. It's not because we have bad breath. It's not because we're just an annoyance. It's for Christ's name's sake. It's His name. So here's what I want you to, here's what I want you to see. The, the main doctrine that I, that I want to pull out of this. Because of their enmity with God in general, and their hatred for Christ in particular, evil men of all types will always persecute those who truly bear the name of Christ in word and in deed. Because men are haters of God and of His Christ, they will hate the name of God and of Christ, and they will hate those who bear that name. How do we bear it? In word and deed. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Because of their enmity with God in general, and their hatred for Christ in particular, evil men of all types have always persecuted those who truly bear the name of Christ in word and in deed. Now let's open that up. Let's, let's get more specific. What is it about Christ and His Word that is so obnoxious to the world? We'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is just an example, but I, just, I think this drives home the point very clearly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What is it about Christ and His Word that is so obnoxious to the world? Look at verse 30. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now notice the two end caps of the the section I just read. First, because of Him. And then to conclude, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The very first thing the gospel of Jesus Christ does is kick out from underneath man whatever legs he might have to stand on. That's what it does. Salvation. When we proclaim the gospel, we are saying salvation is not from you. It's of God. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus. And men hate that. And once we get done, we say, and you can't boast in anything. You have nothing to brag about. The gospel of Christ takes away from man everything he has from the very start. Let me explain to you the gospel. You have nothing to stand on. That's where we start. We begin with God. Who is God? He's everything you're not. And He requires from you everything you don't have. That's how the gospel begins. But then notice what He goes to say. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus became to us. Again, He says this is just the gospel in these two verses. Christ Jesus became to us first wisdom from God. You go to any natural man, he thinks himself wise. Whether he'll admit it or not, he thinks himself wise. Even if he wants to play country boy dumb, he thinks he's smart. Somewhere he thinks he's wise. But after reducing his wisdom to folly, the gospel of Jesus Christ presents to him an external wisdom in the person of Christ, leaving him nothing to boast in. You're not wise, sir. Christ became to us wisdom so that we might know God and know truth. Christ Jesus became to us righteousness. The natural man believes his own goodness will satisfy the demands of God. And so after reducing him to nothing in his folly, the gospel presents an external righteousness in the person of Christ. The gospel, as we've seen in weeks past, requires you to repudiate your own righteousness. You have nothing to bring. It leaves us no righteousness of our own in which we might boast. Not only are you foolish, but you're unrighteous. Christ Jesus became to us sanctification. The natural man thinks that he's naturally acceptable before God. He's he's pretty much clean. He imagines that at any point he decides whenever he wants to, whenever he gets good and ready, he'll straighten himself up and he'll tuck his shirt in and he'll walk up and he'll serve God. The gospel comes and says, Sir, you are not clean. You are filthy and corrupt. You're not holy. You're common. You're not sanctified. You're unsanctified, unclean. Only the blood of Jesus cleanses and purifies and makes a sinner Worthy to be used in God's service. You don't have any cleanness. Christ Jesus became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now this could go many ways. The natural man thinks that upon his death, it would only be appropriate, it would only be right for God to cut him a little slack and just receive him as he is. After all, God knows nobody's perfect. And he comforts himself with that thought all the time. 
He knows he's a sinner, but surely God will cut him some slack. He knows he's going to die. He's a slave to the fear of death. He's a slave to sin, but surely God will have mercy on that day. The gospel of Christ reminds him, sir, you can't purchase your own redemption. You can't purchase your own pardon. Slaves don't buy themselves out. Slave, where did you get that money? I got it from you, master. You can't buy yourself out. Only Christ can afford that redemption price. So you see then the gospel message is in itself obnoxious to men because it comes to them and says, you're a fool, you're unrighteous, you're unclean, and you can't do anything about it. God is the only one who can do it, and when He does it, He leaves you with nothing to boast in. It reduces man to nothing, sweeps all self-hope out the window, it reveals how vain all of our attempts are, and it shows us how wicked we are in spite of all of our efforts for self-reformation. We're still wicked. When this gospel is presented to fallen men, unless it is accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit to, to stir up that fallow ground for reception, they hate it. They hate it. Rest assured, if you are faithful to preach the gospel, you will be hated. Because they hate the message... And the believer is so adamant about the message, they're going to hate us. So there's the gospel word that is offensive, the word of Christ, but there's also gospel holiness, the the deeds that we carry out in Christ's name. The transforming power of the gospel exposes the evil of the world. Just a few seconds of practical thought makes this clear. When you wear what the world wears, go where the world goes... Say what the world says. Do what the world does on the days when the world does it. Watch what the world says to watch. Listen to what the world says to listen to. Laugh at what the world thinks is funny. Why on earth would the world hate you? They did not hate our Lord because He was like them. They did not hate Jesus because He gave too many hugs. They hated Him because He was holy. They killed Him. They would hate you too if you were holy. Brother, listen to this, brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. See, this is where it's going to literally hit home for many people. Taking a stand for the true gospel and the transforming power of the true gospel... A gospel that doesn't transform is a false gospel. The true gospel transforms and it produces holiness. And when you take a stand for that holiness, that will bring a public mockery on the beliefs and the practices of your parents, of your siblings, of your extended family, of your school buddies, of friends that you have that are in churches in this area. When you do that, it's going to cost you. And they're going to say, oh, you go to that church. And they think in their mind... They're doing service to God by hating you in their hearts. Bearing the name and reproach of Christ means refusing to say and do and go and participate in many of the things professing Christians do, calling it liberty. When the Scriptures clearly denounce it as sin, they say, oh, we just love Jesus more and we're, we're resting in the liberty He's given us. They think they're doing service to God. Peter says they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. 
and they malign you. Now what's sad is that's more true today of the visible church than the world most of the time because the visible church has been meshed and blurred with the world. So you take truth to someone who professes to be a Christian. You live holy in the presence of someone who professes to be a Christian. And they're surprised that you don't join them in the flood of debauchery and they malign you. If you cannot endure the scowls and frowns of men in this community over the truth, you will not endure the true hardships that are coming upon this nation. In addition to that, if you can't endure and won't endure, that means for certain you're not preparing your children to endure. And when they get older, they're, they're going to walk away far easily than you will. The gospel message exposes idolatry and human inventions. Gospel holiness exposes fence-straddling professors of Christianity who want Christ in name only but have no intention of obeying His commands. And they hate it. And usually, again, professors of Christianity are the most arrogant, the most hateful, the most vitriolic, the most quick to lash out because they've got something to defend and that's their righteousness, their righteous standing that they've got the world believing they have. Because of their enmity with God in general and their hatred for Christ in particular, evil men of all types will always persecute those who truly bear the name of Christ in word and deed. So then, let's apply this. Number one, count the cost. Count the cost. I'll read from Matthew 10 again. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Have you ever considered, have you ever meditated upon that Jesus? You see, this is not a Christ any different than any other Christ in the Scriptures, but it's one that we tend to put out of our minds. Have you ever considered this Christ, the, 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 the Jesus, the Savior that you have in your mind, is He one to say, do not think that I've come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set. This is my job. I'm setting people against one another. A man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You see, most people's view of Christ is too gentle, too pacifistic. Christ would never be divisive. Christ was all about gathering people together. Jesus says, no, I came to walk into a household and cut it in half. Can you even imagine? And again, we're, we're counting the cost. We're considering, do I want to follow this Jesus? Because we all got a Jesus in our head. Do I want to follow this Jesus? Can you even imagine the Lord Jesus here in the flesh saying, let's go to your parents' house and let's eat. Sitting at a meal and He starts a conversation, you, your palms begin to get sweaty. And truth begins to come to the surface. And He's looking at you, waiting for you to respond. 
And then he gets up from the table and he says, you need to wash your hands of these folks. He doesn't give you an option. He stands up, he walks to the door and he says, are you staying or are you coming? The words of his mouth, the sharp two-edged sword, come between a father who spent years with his son, raising his son, and a son who's looked up to his dad since he was a toddler. and says, this relationship is done. Truth comes and causes the father to hate his son. The son to hate his father causes sons and daughters to abandon their parents' faithful witness. Can you imagine that Jesus? Because if you can't imagine a Jesus who would do that, then you don't have the right one. I wonder if you know this this sword. You know what a sword does, right? A sword cuts, divides. It leaves things dead and bloody. It's a weapon of warfare, not of peace. Father, son, mother, daughter, daughter daughter-in-law, mother-in-law. Some of you are so afraid to hurt somebody's feelings or lose a a little bit of that inheritance that you would never speak up around your family. What if they cut me off? What if they take me out of the, the will? What if I'm not invited to the Christmas party? That's what we think. And so you'd rather hug their necks in hell for all of eternity than to part ways now and walk with Christ. You want Christ, but you say, yeah, sure, you can come over, but you need to leave your sword at the door because they they don't like the sword. They don't like the Word. Now, I don't think that our Lord is implying that every family where there's a mixture of believers and unbelievers is just going to be broken up. We just got to leave. I don't think He's saying that. I think we have to get the, the context in order. He's saying when you live faithfully, When you are faithful to the truth, when you live according to godliness and you won't condone or participate in what they're doing, they're going to hate you. Some of you aren't willing to testify to the truth. And you do condone sin. You give your hearty approval and your smiles to their evil. If Christ came to bring a sword and you're not willing to receive the sword, you don't get Christ. Because you're too afraid to be hated. When Jesus says, you will be hated. Expect it. Again, for some of you, being a part of this church in this county is going to bring reproach upon you when you're with your families. What are you going to do at that point? What's going to happen? Shrug your shoulders. Well, the elders, you know, they're, they're kind of, I don't know. I mean, that's just what they do. Brush it off. Is the eccentricities of just a few zealous types? Well, that we got we got some guys who are kind of out there, you know. But that's that's not most of us. We're not like that. Pull a Peter and just deny it altogether. I don't know those people. Or will you stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the confession that we've all made in the presence of many witnesses to the truths that we hold to be true, biblically true? The days are coming when you're going to have to decide whether you want the sword or not. So have you died to yourself? Here's the problem. Most of you haven't died to yourselves. Jesus says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. A cross is an instrument of death. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So so think about it. You You really got to count the cost here. With this Savior? With this church? Are you dead? Or are you still living for something? You got, you got something to live for. Do you still have something to gain? Some sort of platform, some level of prestige that you might can attain to in this world. 
And so anything that might hinder that, well, you've got to cut it loose. Or are you dead? Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Peter said, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter was writing to persecuted saints. He tells them, if you're living for human passions, you've not been crucified with Christ. If you're not living for the will of God over your own will, you're living for human passions. You're not living for Christ. So you have to count the cost of being a disciple of Christ. Some of you are not willing yet to lose it all. You have To have Christ, you have to be willing to lose everything. That doesn't mean He's going to take it. He might not. He left Job his wife. He didn't take everything. But you need to be ready and willing to lose it all for the sake of Christ. So count the cost. Secondly, do not be surprised. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. You see, the only way to avoid being surprised is to expect something to happen. And the only way you can truly live in expectancy of this type of persecution is to live a life for Christ's namesake. If you're doing that, you can expect persecution. My fear is that perhaps a lot of us are not expecting persecution because we know deep, deep, deep down we're not living for the name of Christ. We're professing the name of Christ, but we're not living it. Don't be surprised when it comes. It's not strange. It's always been the case with God's people. It will always be the case with God's people. So it's not strange. When I go to Walmart and the automatic doors open, I don't stop and gasp. I say, did you see that? The door just opened. Why? Because that's not strange. It happens every time I go. I expect it. As a matter of fact, if I go late at night and that door doesn't open, I'm going to hit it. I'll be the one to hit it because I'm expecting it's going to open the last second. It's not strange. Do not be surprised as though something strange were happening. Scripture promises that this is the normal pattern. If we truly believe what God said, why would we, why would we, we be surprised? As if something strange were happened, happening. So we have to just adopt a biblical mindset. See, Christians in this country for far too long have come to expect comfort and acceptance rather than expecting persecution. We walk outside and we're not watching around corners. We're expecting ease. We're expecting comfort. We read about it around the world and we're startled. Look at this news story. A Christian is getting persecuted. Can you believe it? Of course I can believe it. We begin to talk about what might happen in this country. California might outlaw the Bible or Bible sales. Can you believe it? Of course I can believe it. It's not surprising. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening. Number three, and here's, here's where we get down to the meat. Rejoice if you're counted worthy to suffer. The very next verse, Peter says, Rejoice! insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Think about that. Think about the attitude that you would have to have to suffer for Christ and to stand up 
and receive pats on the back and cheers and celebration. That guy was worthy to suffer. I want to know that guy. Rejoice. But here's the qualifier. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. We, we, don't, we wouldn't rejoice because, well, now news got out. We get some sort of worldly fame. We rejoice because we get to advance the growing victim mentality among evangelicals. Rejoice not because fellow believers put us on their shoulders. We rejoice because I was allowed to share in the sufferings of my Savior. He suffered for me, and I got to share. I got a piece of it. In Acts chapter 5, it says when they had called the, in the apostles, I love this, this is so funny. They beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They did not stop. They didn't say, well, you know, the law says we're not allowed to speak in the name. In the eyes of the world, it's a great honor to be sent as a delegate and represent one's country in the Olympic Games. To stand before the crowd waving the banner of your nation draped with the gold medal of victory. Well, for a Christian, it's different. You see, for us, it would be a great honor to be chosen to, be, to, to bear the name of Christ to the stake or into the Colosseum or before the courts to suffer. And then maybe, if we have the opportunity, to walk away and bear in our flesh some marks that look a little bit like what Christ bore in His on the cross. And that's, a, that's a, a, a time of rejoicing for us. But we don't have that mindset. We're so afraid. We're terrified. We're, we're weak and we're trembling. Peter says, rejoice. Do not fear. Do not be surprised. But rejoice that you're allowed to suffer. That you were counted worthy to suffer. For some of us, maybe we, we have to get to the point where we're, we're honest. That we're not yet being counted worthy. Why are we not worthy, Lord? What do I need to do to be counted worthy to suffer for your name? And lastly, examine your heart and your life. Again, I'll come back to 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is an indicative statement. He is describing truth. It's a truth claim. So are you being persecuted? If your answer is no then examine yourself. Maybe you have no desire at all. That would, I would say that would mean you're not a Christian. This is why you're not persecuted. You're not like the world. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And the world does love you as its own. You're just like one of them. And the reason you receive no opposition from outsiders is because you're not an insider. You have no desire to follow Christ. Truly, you want to go to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. But you don't want to follow Christ. And if that's you, then your job today, the command is repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, bore the guilt and curse of sin to the cross. At the cross, God the Father crushed Him 
in the place of sinners. Three days later, he rose up from the grave, and that was a sign to all of the world that was like the Father saying, I am satisfied as it pertains to the sins of my people. They may now come. Christ is your only hope for atonement. Cast yourself upon Christ. As James Durham says over and over, roll yourself upon Christ. Maybe your desire is just not to live a godly life. And think, listen to how I'm saying this. You have a desire, but they're not according to truth. They're not according to the Word of God and, and the mind of Christ. So you have desires, but whatever you're desiring does not line up with Scripture. Well, how, how do you clarify that? You get in the Scriptures. Get in the Scriptures before God having your mind filled with wisdom from God to make sure whatever you're desiring is here. So we can have a lot of aspirations that our world tells us are Christian. Oh, you just want to be one of those Christians. But they're not from here, and so they don't affect anybody. Nobody's upset about it. So you get in the Scriptures. Another thing would be to find a godly saint and ask them, to teach you, explain to you, show me what godliness looks like. Show me where in Scripture you go to, to prescribe this action and this action and this action. Help me to see it. Because I would, I would venture to say for many of us, we get up in the morning and we walk out the door and if someone said, could you please show me from the text that you profess is the Word of God, show me exactly where and why you're going to do what you're about to do. See, we just assume whatever I'm doing is Christian because I live in America. We've not started here. And what happens is, even there, you might be doing something right, but you're not doing it from the proper motivation because your mind hasn't been transformed. So we've got to come back to the Scriptures always to make sure not only that we have a desire, but that we have a desire to live a godly life. Godly life as is laid out in Scripture. And once you have correct desires, if they are true desires, you will act on them. And thirdly, as you examine yourself, and perhaps this is probably the most important, maybe your desire is not rooted in union with Christ. All to, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. True godliness, true piety can only come from, the, from Christ by the power that He gives through His Spirit, the Spirit which is the bond of our union with Him. It ties us to Him. Or to say it more simply, true godliness flows from Christ through the Spirit into the believer. That's where we get true godliness, not just external Actions, external confessions, true godliness. This is what the world hates. If you're going to set out to live just a life of self-righteousness, religious hypocrisy, make great claims while refuting all of those claims with your life, you've got nothing to fear. The world is not afraid of that. They don't care about that. That just shows them what they already believe to be true, that whatever you say you believe has no power. That doesn't affect them. That's not obnoxious. True godliness from Christ, with Him as the source, flowing through His Spirit, causes a person to live consistently. So what they say with their mouth comes out in their deeds. It matches. And it's consistent. 
That kind of godly consistency and that kind of purity is like salt poured in the wound cut by the sword of the Spirit. So you cut them with the truth and then you live it and you show them it can be done. And they hate it. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Are you persecuted? If not, why not? What's what's the problem? No, I'm not saying that we all need to walk out here and expect to get our heads chopped off for whatever we do. We do live in a nation that at least tries to hold on to some supposed remnant of Judeo-Christian ethic. And so, and especially in, in the South, our lifestyle will be somewhat tolerated to an extent. But I believe if you truly live a godly life in Christ Jesus, even in Southern America, even around professing evangelicals, you're going to be persecuted. It's going to come. So examine yourself. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's time for formative church discipline. This is where you get to examine your heart based on the Scriptures. Examine your life based on the Scriptures. Think about those times this week when you've kept your mouth shut, when you should have been vocal. Those times when you cowered in fear, when you should have been bold. Now what do you do with them? You hide them? No. You bring them to the Lord Jesus. You give them to Him. You seek forgiveness. And you eat with Him. So take a moment. Consider these things for a couple minutes and then we'll come to the table.